Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's commonly stated that the title of this book comes from its principal character, Esther. And that is certainly reasonable, although a case could be made for calling the book Mordecai, as Esther's older cousin also plays a very prominent role in this narrative. While I wouldn't be enough of a male chauvinist pig to vote for Mordecai, but, uh, but we ought not to discount his role in this as well. The story of Esther is set in the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus, who is uh, the Hebrew name for the man that we know historically more commonly as Xerxes. The book narrates the life of Esther, a Jewish orphan who is raised by her older cousin Mordecai. She becomes queen of the Persian Empire and saves the Jews from annihilation at the hands of an evil man by the name of Haman. This book stresses the unexpected reversal of circumstances. You have a Jewish orphan that replaces the queen. You have Mordecai replacing the king's counselor, Haman. The Jews were to be exterminated, but instead they prospered. Unexpected reversal of circumstances. And as such, we'll see the idea of providence runs from the first chapter all the way through the last. The events of Esther fit chronologically between the chapters of 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. We have just finished that. We studied Ezra chapters 1 through 6, then we studied some other things, and then came back to Ezra chapters 7 through 10, and now we're in the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther is unique. A lot of people don't like to study Esther for several different reasons. These are among the reasons they don't like to study it. Esther is the only book in the Bible in which the name of God is not mentioned. The New Testament doesn't quote from the book of Esther, nor have copies been found of it among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The law is never mentioned in this book, nor are sacrifices or offerings. In the book of Esther, nothing is said about either Mordecai or Esther praying. In fact, Prayer is never mentioned throughout the book, although fasting is, but prayer is not mentioned. For these reasons, Martin Luther, who never seemed to lack for an opinion, nor was he shy about revealing his opinion, opinions to anyone who would listen, did not believe Esther to be canonical. Instead, and I wish, I, I, I quote this, he said he wished, quote, that it had never been written. That's Brother Martin for you. But with all due respect to Brother Martin, the Jews included the book of Esther in their Hebrew canon. And there is no compelling reason to believe that they were wrong in doing so. The human author of Esther did not identify himself in the text. References in the book show that whoever wrote it was very familiar with Persian culture, probably lived at the time of Esther because the person that wrote this book seemed to be an eyewitness of many of the things that happened. So the prevailing view, at least by the first century, now this is, these are events that would have happened 500 years before, but at least by the first century in the Jewish historian Josephus, he reports that the prevailing view was that the human author of the book of Esther was indeed Mordecai. 
himself. Now, the events of Esther take place during the Persian period of ancient history and during the reign of King Xerxes, in particular, the years 486 to 464 B.C. So these are years that take place in between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. The first historical event that is alluded to in this book seems to be Xerxes' military planning session at which he plants the policy and the strategy for his ill-fated campaign against the Greek that, that takes place in this period of time that the book is written. The king held this planning session, we know historically, from 483 to 482 B.C. The last recorded event in the book of Esther is the institution of the Feast of Purim that took place in 473. Therefore, the events that this book records take place over a 10-year period of time. Sometimes we kind of get the idea it was just over a few weeks, but this is a 10-year period of time. By the time the book of Esther opens, many of the Jews have left Persia and gone back into the land. That's what we've been studying for almost the last year, the return to the land, to reestablish Israel. That was Ezra 1 through 6. Most of the Jews in exile did not return. You follow me? There were people that went back into the land after the captivity, but most stayed in Persia. Now, that actually was a violation of the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 28. It was a violation of what the prophets had told them to do, Isaiah 48 and Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. So I want you to get the flavor here before we start. Most of the Jews stayed behind. And the ones that stayed behind did so in violation of the, of the message of the prophets and the Mosaic Law. Could it be that they preferred the life the comfort that they had in Persia, as opposed to going back and making that long track and having to fight all the troubles that you would have to do to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple? I don't know. Could there be extenuating circumstances in, individual, in certain individuals' cases? Well, I don't know. I would assume probably. But one of the, the issues in Esther that we have to face before we begin the book at all especially in view of our study of previous books that talk about the returning exiles and the, the heroic nature of that return, is that we have to admit to ourselves that both Esther and Mordecai were among the people who didn't go back. So a, as the book begins, we need to understand Esther and Mordecai were among the people who didn't follow the Mosaic Law or the Prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah, for whatever reason. Now, maybe there were extenuating circumstances. We don't know. But what we have to see is, at least as the book begins, we're not dealing with Zerubbabel. We're not dealing with Ezra. We're not dealing with, some, with a couple of spiritual giants. Not as the book begins. And that's important for us to understand what happens in this book. Because what happens in this book, both on Mordecai's and Esther's part, are the, the actions of one who would have been someone who was more spiritually mature. This gives me hope that God can use people who are not necessarily all like Jeremiah or like Isaiah. You don't have to be a King David in order to be used. Esther and Mordecai were among those who willfully chose not to return. 
There seems to be at least two primary purposes in the writing of Esther, perhaps maybe even a third. The first purpose is that God demonstrates his providential care of his people when they are outside of the promised land because of their disobedience. God demonstrates providential care even to the people who are outside the land. They were willfully rebellious people. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian comes and takes away the people, actually in three different phases, and destroys the city of Jerusalem. That was done because of their disobedience. Now, one thing Esther is going to show us is that even these people who had been exiled because of their disobedience were the recipients of God's providence. Second, the book of Esther explains the Feast of Purim. Now, that would have been more important to a Jew than it would be to us, but that's a second reason why the book was written. A third purpose, at least a third possibility, as to why this book might have been written was to warn individuals, even into our day, against the idea of anti-Semitism. Even when the Jews were in a position in a country where they had been because they were being disciplined, God still doesn't, he does not tolerate anti-Semitism. So we have those three purposes. First, it demonstrates God's providence to a people who are living outside the land because of their own disobedience. Second, it gives us the origin of this feast. And third, it does warn us against anti-Semitism. Like Ruth, the book of Esther is an illustration. It's an illustration of providence. It records a slice of life that these exilic people had. It demonstrates great providence. Ruth, by the way, illustrates God's redemption. Esther illustrates providence. So now we've used the word providence several times. What is it? Providence comes from a Latin word. and means to see the affairs of life before they happen. The theological meaning of the word is God's activity relating from foresight. God's activity relating or resulting from foresight. Now, we might be able to predict with some accuracy some of the things that are going to happen tomorrow. We might look at the meteorological issues outside and say, well, it's going to rain tomorrow, or it's going to clear up tomorrow, and it's going to be approximately this temperature. We might be able to predict that. And I can pretty well predict tomorrow, if I leave the house at 730, I'll get to the church at, at about 815. It takes about 45 minutes to go the 17 miles because it always stops up here about Monroe. So I can fairly well predict that, and I'm probably going to be right, unless the University of Houston is out for some reason they might be, you know, or some, some other reason that would be out of the ordinary. We can predict certain things with some sort of accuracy, but we can't know for sure with absolute certainty. God, on the other hand, foresees all things with certainty and can act because of that foreknowledge. I'm kind of glad that I don't have the omniscience to see what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next. Sometimes it's okay if things just kind of take us by surprise because if we knew a particular thing was going to happen on that day, it'd probably freak us out. One of the reasons it would freak us out is because we're not omnipotent like God. God knows the future, but he's also omnipotent and has the ability to handle whatever contingency may come up. We might know a little bit, but God knows everything. We might know certain things because of patterns, but God knows everything because of his omniscience. And he can act because of that. So the theological doctrine of providence 
is that God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hands. Now, there's a psalm that talks about this. It's Psalm 11. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Psalm 11 is a psalm of David that talks about providence. David says in Psalm 11, verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to the mountain, for below the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Here's the providence part. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the son of men. He knows everything that's going on in every life. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. From the wicked he will rain down snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now this is David's poetic way of describing what providence is. The Lord sees everything. He knows who's righteous and he knows who's wicked. And and David is saying, I'm not going to worry about this. Because even though I I know they're out there trying to kill me, I know God's on my side, and God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's around that next bend, around the next corner. I don't, but God does. That's providence. So providence includes God's omniscience, the fact that he knows the the beginning from the end. The future is as perspicuous as the past, is the way the theologians say that. In other words, the future is as clear as the past to God. Just like we know what's going on right now in front of us, God knows what's going to go on a million years with actually greater acuity than we know what's going on in front of us right now. And he knows what's happened in the past with perfect recall. God's providence is related to his omniscience, but it's also related to his omnipotence. For you see, if God knew what was going to happen in the future but could do nothing about it, that might not give me a whole lot of comfort. There there are some theologians that are beginning to think that today. There are some theologians that believe that God is omniscient, but he's not omnipotent. In fact, a very famous Jewish theologian felt that way, Rabbi Harold Kushner. I believe it was almost 25 years ago, wrote a book called, Why Did Bad Things Happen to Good People? A lot of Christians read that book, thinking that it was a great book to read, but if you read it carefully, what you would, what you would determine was that Rabbi Kushner believed that that God is omniscient, that he knew the end from the beginning. He believed that God is omnibenevolent, which means that he's all good and all loving. But he didn't believe that God was omnipotent. He was not all powerful. In other words, God wanted good to happen in the future. He wanted things to work out his way, but he wasn't capable of doing it. And as you might expect, that theology didn't come from Rabbi Kushner's reading of the Hebrew Bible. That theology came from a personal experience. One of his children was taken up, died in, in their, their teenage years. He had prayed earnestly that that wouldn't happen. He felt like he was a righteous man when he prayed earnestly, and it didn't happen when God took his child anyway. Then he just determined, well, God is good, but he, can't, he couldn't have done anything about it. That's not the biblical doctrine of providence. The biblical doctrine of providence includes omniscience. He knows everything. Omnipotence. He can do anything but also sovereignty. To put it very simply, God's sovereignty means God has a right to rule. It could also mean that God has a right to do whatever he desires to do with his creation. 
God is self-limiting in that he won't do anything that violates his holy character or his love. And we can take great uh, comfort in that. But God knows what's around the corner. He can do something around the cor- what's, uh, with what's around the corner. And he has a right to do something about what's around the corner. That's God's providence. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Esther. That is the primary theological point that is made in this book. The theological doctrine of providence is that God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hands. Or, providence theologically means God's activity resulting from his foresight. Now, do you see what that means now? God sees the future. His providence is the activity, the outworking of his omnipotence as a result of what he sees. For example, if I knew for certain that the Gulf Freeway was going to be shut down completely tomorrow because of some terrible accident at Monroe, then perhaps I might wait until 9 o'clock to leave instead of leaving at 7.30, and that way I could, if the, if the accident was going to happen at rush hour, and, and, and miss it altogether. So you see, because I knew something, I acted on that. Now, if you transfer that over the, to the level of the omnis, God knows everything about you and about me, And the wonderful thing is he personally loves you and me, and he knows what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. And since he loves you deeply, he's going to take care of, providentially, what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. All of us, if we think about it, have illustrations in our life where God's providence was at work. I'm going to give you an illustration of one that actually was significant, but but in the big scheme of things, almost can seem trivial, but to me it certainly wasn't insignificant. I was sitting one day in the early 80s on Center Street in Deer Park before 225 was finished. Some of you are from Deer Park. You know that place. And, and I was sitting at the light. I was very tired. I was on my way to church, actually. I had finished work. was on my way to church. And I was sitting at the stoplight. I was the first car in the stoplight. I had a little gray Audi. It was a really fun car, a little five-speed. And I was sitting at the light, and the light changed to green. I was really, really tired. I didn't jolt out into the street. I was going to take my time. I wasn't in any real big hurry. There was nobody honking behind me, thankfully. And something just took my head and turned it to the left. When I turned my head to the left, here's an 18-wheeler that was coming barreling through the light, many seconds late, not just one of these bam-bam things, but many, many seconds late. Had I not turned my head providentially, not luckily, some people call it, well, that's just luck or by chance. No, not for, the, not, not for the Christian. We need to use the word providentially. Providentially, God caused my head, I believe, to turn to the left. I see this tanker truck barreling through the intersection. I slammed on my brakes, waited, and made the turn. Now, we can see how that might have worked out had that not, had God in his providence not been there to take care of me. Then I wouldn't be here today ministering to you. And all of the many things that have happened over the last few years wouldn't have happened. Now, that's just one example of providence in my life. I have a whole lot more that I won't share with you tonight, but you know what I mean. You've had the same kinds of things happen. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and you met the girl that was going to become your wife. If you decided not to go to that particular place that particular day, then you would never have met her, and and, uh, things might be uh, totally different. Those are the kind of things that we look at with regard to providence on one level. Now, Esther is going to be a recipient of the providence of God On a pretty serious level. She's going to be dealing with the most powerful man. Or at least one of the most powerful men. In the world. 
So the book of Esther speaks of providence. No, it doesn't speak of God directly. I know what Luther was talking about. It doesn't speak directly of God. But it does speak of God's acting as a result of his foresight. It does speak of his providence. So I have to say, and with all due respect to Brother Martin, and he did a lot of things that were really great, but his view of James and of Esther aren't, aren't among the top ten. <laughs> Nor was his anti-Semitism one of the top ten, which may have been why he didn't like the book of Esther, because it didn't really fit some of the things that he, that he did. But the hand of God is all over the book of Esther. It's a wonderful book. You'll be, I think if you stay with us throughout the series, you'll be greatly blessed by what is revealed in the book of Esther. The great application of the message of this book is that in everything we do, we need to take God into account. We need to realize that God is providentially working our lives out for us. And to take that into account in every decision that we make. This is the essence of biblical wisdom, by the way, to take God into account. In the book of Colossians, Paul would have put it this way. He would have said that we need to make Christ not merely imminent, but preeminent. Well, God in his providence gives us reason to realize God is the most important thing in our lives. Trust him and cooperate with him, and you'll be blessed. Go against him, and things aren't going to work out for you. That's part of providence. The Apostle Paul put it this way in perhaps... One of the most well-known verses in all the New Testament, certainly in the book of Romans. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are the to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's providence. If you want to summarize providence in one verse, it's Romans 8, 28. So this is not just an Old Testament concept, it's a New Testament concept as well. God will complete his plans. God created us with free will. We determine our own destiny, but only insofar as we cooperate with his will or oppose his will. I need to use my free will to get with the plan, to get with the program. Then I'll be blessed. If I use my free will to butt heads with God, then I'm going to be cursed or suffer discipline. It's really not that hard. The Christian way of life is really not that hard. You either get with the program or you decide not to, and that's your choice. Now, there are many sub-choices you make once you decide to get with the program, but it's really not that hard. Our choice affects our destiny, but our choices never, ever, ever frustrate the plan of God. Our choices affect our destiny, but our choices never frustrate the plan of God. Most of you know the story of Esther, but so if you'll allow me, had Esther chosen not to talk to the king, do you think the Jews would have been destroyed? No, I don't either. I think someone else would have been raised up. 1979, a fellow who was kind of like a big brother to me, my Uncle Tommy, it was my mother's much, much younger brother, who's 17 years younger, so Tommy and I were four years apart. Tommy was never an athlete, and I always was, even growing up. So when we would play football, even though we were four years apart, it was kind of a fair match. You know, when we'd play basketball, it was a fair match. And we grew up, and when I was 21 years old, that meant Tommy was 25. And I got a call one day that, that Tommy had lymphatic cancer. 
and it was um, stage four lymphatic cancer. At first, the doctors said they weren't going to do any, they weren't going to institute any treatment at all. They ultimately tried some experimental things, but didn't work out. He was down here in Houston in one of the last days of his life, and I went down there to talk to him about Jesus Christ, because even though we had grown up and done things over the summer times, we had played ball a lot, we were good, really good friends, he was my uncle, but we were more like brothers, I really never knew for sure if he was even saved. Now, that's my fault, I should have talked to him a lot earlier than that, and I went down to St. Joseph's Hospital here downtown, and I remember going into his room and, and talking with him, and he was in a little bit of a bad mood, and in fact, actually, actually, that day he was blaming me for some of the things that happened with his blood work, which I knew was, was totally irrational. I didn't have anything to do with him getting cancer. But, you know, I guess uncles and nephews or brothers and brothers can do those kind of things sometimes. But for whatever reason, I never talked to him about Jesus Christ. I went and I turned and left. And on my way home, I, I just really berated myself. You know, how could I not talk to him. I loved this guy. I mean, I, I love him. How could I not talk to him about the most important thing in life when I knew, now they hadn't told him yet, I knew he just had days to go. So I determined the next day that I would go up there and I would, by golly, give him the gospel no matter what the circumstances were. Well, I went up there the next day and he was, you know how cancer patients get when there's so much pain? And he was on a morphine drip, and they had had to turn it up. And he was he was curled up in the fetal position, in a little ball, and he wouldn't even look at me. I mean, he was he wasn't real happy. Plus, he was in he was just in such discomfort. And I left, and I, and I I wept. Remember that I wept all the way home, thinking how could I have cowered it out the day before and not given him the gospel? And then he died. It's like they said he was a few days later. I found out though something happened after I left that day. A little Pentecostal woman, of all things for God's eye on her. For me, a little Pentecostal woman had come by. She was just doing visitation. She didn't have permission to be there. She just happened to go by, and she went in the room uninvited. The day that I left, that he was still coherent, she went in the room uninvited and gave him the gospel. He accepted it. He's in heaven today. You see, my chicken and out, or whatever it was that day, I, that's the only thing I call it, it did not cause Tommy to go to hell. God just decided to use somebody else if I wasn't going to be available to be used. And I can't wait to get to heaven, and Tommy's going to see me, and he's going to come up to me and say, what was wrong with you? <laughs> I thought we were friends. You see what I mean? I think had Esther chosen not to be faithful, then God was going to raise up someone else. Hence, I think Mordecai's statement in chapter 2 that we briefly went over. You see, it was in Esther's best interest to obey God. It was in my best interest to, to give the gospel to my uncle, Uncle Tommy. But God's going to give it to him. If I choose to be unfaithful, he's still going to be faithful. God causes all things to work together for good. Even my own cowardice, if that's what it was. Still trying to evaluate that. Or had Esther decided to not do what she should do? Providence is a very important doctrine. But remember this. We have free will, but our choice doesn't frustrate the plan of God. God wasn't going to let the Jews get wiped out. Now, there would have been some of the, they come back from the exile, I know that. But he wasn't going to let the Jews get wiped out. Somebody else, I think, would have stepped up. 
Now, this doesn't diminish at all our, our appreciation for Esther. I hope you understand that. We have a little bit of time to get into the first nine verses of the text tonight. Let's do that. Open your Bibles to Esther. And let's look at the first two verses. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. The account opens with the mention of this man I'm going to call Xerxes because it's easier to pronounce. That's his Greek name. And he reigned over 127 provinces. We might call those states. Over 127 states from India all the way to Ethiopia. If you're in the back, you might not be able to see this map very well. But this is a map that basically shows what we would call the Middle East today. Xerxes is called Ahasuerus in the Hebrew text. He ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years, from 485 to 465 B.C. What, I'm, what I hope to show you in these next few minutes is that this man, King Xerxes, is no lightweight. He's reigning over a large part of the civilized world at the time that the book of Esther opens. This is a very serious man. Judah was one of the provinces that this king, Xerxes, ruled over. India, the, as the text mentions in verse 1, India corresponds to what today we call West Pakistan. Kush, or Ethiopia, in some of your Bibles it says Kush, some Ethiopia, that's the term for the Upper Nile region, as you can see in white here that says Egypt, if you're sitting close enough. Sudan, all of northern Ethiopia. So this is a very, very large empire. Now we get to verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. The, fourth year, the third year, rather, of King Xerxes' reign would have been 482 B.C. Xerxes, who is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful man in the world at the time, he throws a 180-day banquet. This is not the same as the seven-day banquet that's going to come later, but he gets everybody together for 180 days. That's about six months. He brings all his the nobles, what we might call the governors of the different provinces, all of his military people, they all gather together in Susa, which is represented by that red dot right there. Susa is near the modern-day border of Iraq and Iran. They all get together, and they meet in this one location. And this 180-day feast, or might I call it a planning session, probably corresponds to what historians know as a great feast that Xerxes gave when he was planning to invade Greece. According to Herodotus, who was called by some the father of history, it took Xerxes four years to get ready for the invasion that he's going to launch in 481. Herodotus's four years would have extended from 485 to 481. The 180 days involved planning sessions. If you're going to go to war against a very powerful nation like Greece, then all the leaders of the provinces had to be prepped, as did all the military leaders. So it took them quite some time. What I want you to see in these first nine verses is that when Esther deals with Xerxes, she is dealing 
was one of the, if not the most powerful man on earth. There's a reason why there's some fear and trembling with regard to Xerxes and Esther. The book of Esther says nothing about this invasion of Greece. Xerxes defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Thermopylae, but then was in turn defeated, probably, although he may not know the name now because of World War II battles, but one of the greatest naval battles ever was the Battle of Salamis in Greece, 480 B.C. The Persians were thoroughly repelled by the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis. It was a terrible defeat for Xerxes. Now, that's going to matter, by the way, in our understanding of what Esther's going to go through. Xerxes, who's going to be her husband, was thoroughly defeated at Salamis after he had planned for four years to go after these people, after he was going to avenge some of the losses that his father had taken. And then Xerxes actually leaves and leaves his generals to fight the next battle, the Battle of Plataea, 479, and then they just get spanked, and they all have to come home. Many, if not most, theologians, I mean historians, most historians, believe that Xerxes' defeat at the Battle of Salamis, this naval battle, might have been one of the great turning points in all of human history. In all of human history from beginning to end, they would view the Battle of Salamis as a great turning point. Why? Because it was at that point that the Persians were repelled. And the Greeks, being victorious, had their culture then spread to other parts of the world. So most historians that study these things would believe that the battle, Xerxes' defeat, this man's defeat at the Battle of Salamis, was one of the most significant turning points in all of human history because it allowed for the rise of Western European civilization. And I get that. I love history, too. In fact, Alex Garcia, who talked to you the last two weeks, and I were in a history class together at University of Houston. That's one of the things we studied. It was ancient Greek history. He was an undergrad student. I was going back getting in, prepar- in preparation for going to, to seminary. But we, we studied this battle together. But as a Christian, I think there might have been one other event that might have been a little bit more significant in the spread of Christianity into Europe and the whole rise of Western European culture, and that was the Apostle Paul's decision to, to follow the Macedonian vision in Acts chapter 16, when the gospel was taken from Asia into Europe. Esther is going to gain the favor of the king in 479, 480, the Battle of Salamis, where Xerxes has his tail handed to him. It's a tremendous defeat. Xerxes goes back to Susa, he leaves his generals to fight the next battle, the Battle of Plathe, where they were defeated even in a worse way. Esther gains the favor of King Xerxes in 479. Just one year after, the most powerful man in the world, arguably, suffers one of the greatest defeats that anybody's ever suffered militarily. So Esther gets introduced to King Xerxes when King Xerxes is probably not in the best of moods. His mood would probably be understandably irritable. So when we see later on that Xerxes had these certain rules for people that would come and talk to him, as everybody in Persia knew that this is probably not the right time to disturb him. You see what I mean? But this happens to be the point in time where Esther has to do her thing. I, I build this up today, and the first chapter does, but I want you to see some of the history because you need to know what Esther's walking into. 
You also need to know that Esther, when she walks into it, at least when the narrative begins, is probably not among the most spiritual ladies in Israel. Now, she's not, she's not walking in carnality necessarily. Necessarily, we, we don't know what the circumstances for her not being part of the group that went back. Remember the law and the prophets, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, said they all should go back. And she didn't do it for whatever reason. Maybe it was her family. I don't know. But here we have this obscure Jewish girl, this Jewish orphan, dealing with a man who is extremely powerful and extremely irritating. That's why we have historical background. Verse 5, when the days were completed, the king gave a banquet. See, there's actually two banquets. There's one large one that lasts six months where everybody's playing. And then he's got a special one. When the days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in the Susa capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So while the first six months was specifically for these governors and generals and military leaders, now this particular feast is for everybody. Now, remember, the defeat hasn't happened yet. We're going back to pre-defeat times. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement, marble, mother of pearl, precious stone. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law, that's the Persian law, There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to his own desires of each person. So you don't have to get drunk, you don't want to. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, reckon why whoever wrote Esther, if say it was Mordecai, took all the time to mention all these accoutrements of external wealth. Again, what he's doing is he's showing us who this man is. He's shown us in the first two verses that he is an extremely important person politically. I inserted from history, we also know that he was an extremely important person militarily. Esther doesn't. The book of Esther doesn't tell us that. But now the Mordecai, or whoever wrote Esther, comes back and tells us that he was also enormously wealthy. Again, what we're doing is setting the table for what's going to come in one of the next lessons about the confrontation with this man who is so very powerful and had every reason, now that we know later on he's going to get all this planning, he's still going to lose, had every reason to be very irritated when Esther has to approach him. Look at verse 9 again. Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. I don't think that's a throw-in line. We just had mention of all his phenomenal wealth. And now the palace that Queen Vashti is going to use to throw her banquet. And by the way, that wasn't unusual at all for women to have a separate banquet. But even the palace that she's going to use belongs to Xerxes. He is something else. He's powerful politically. He's powerful militarily. And he's powerful economically. So the book of Esther opens by informing us that the Persian king is no lightweight. He's one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. People fawned over him, and they were in awe of his great wealth. And God is going to use a humble Jewish woman of no particular background. May I call her, respectfully, a a nobody, at least in those circles. Economically, she's a nobody. 
Politically, she's nobody. Militarily, she's a nobody. In the eyes of the world, she'd have been nobody. In the eyes of God, she was. In his providence, he's going to use this Jewish orphan with no particular background to save his people. What a joy it's going to be to observe God's providence at work in the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jewish people of that time.